Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Uh, it is cause for us to sing and give you praise. Uh, we pray that you'd help us understand your word today. Um, help us to understand things you've done in the past, some details about why you did them, and may it be instructive for our own learning and growth that we would more deeply trust you, respect you, uh, appropriately fear you, and strive to live for you as you give us strength and opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so I'm, I'm wondering, I don't, looking out at this room, I don't think probably many are in this situation, but do any of you have a four-year-old in the house? Or you did, that's right, that's right. I think many of us are uh, saying we did. Um, or perhaps grandchildren that are around four years old. What, what significant question are four-year-olds in the habit of asking? Why? I, I just want to know. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, why? That's right. They ask why. Why, 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 right? Now, in, I think in one case in our family, one of our children was a little more sophisticated in their questions. It wasn't a simple why. It was like an elongated sentence that was asking why. No, no surprise, I guess, that that child's now working on a PhD program. But um, it's natural and normal for our children, right, to be asking the why question. But the reason why it's normal and natural is because that's part of how God's made us. There is an interest in knowing information and not just knowing what happened but to understand the meaning and the significance of it. Now, in many situations in life, God doesn't give us the ability to know why. And sometimes that's just part of, we need to trust Him and walk with Him, in spite of not knowing why. But in our passage today that we're going to look at in 2 Kings, and I, I encourage you to turn with me to 2 Kings 17, we are actually given the whys this time. We're given the explanation for why these things happen. Now, if you've been following along closely with the discussion the last two weeks in 2 Kings, you might be asking yourself a question, which is, or asking, thinking, why did he skip 16, right? Well, I, I, uh, I don't I don't know that I can fully answer that for you other than to say I've taught through this before and I skipped 16 that time and it was convenient to skip it again and partly because <laughs> I'm including some of 16 in reference to what we say here at the beginning of 17 alright so it's not that we'll totally abandon the content we'll, we'll make some reference to it but I really want to focus on 17 because it explains the beginning of the destruction of the nation of Israel as far as living in the land. Um, the northern kingdom is captured by Assyria and we're told why. And I think that instruction is very helpful to understand. So let's start. We're going to work our way through the whole chapter 17. Lord willing, we'll do this in 35 or so minutes. But let's start with 1 to 6. It says, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria, and reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, 
not only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile in Assy to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. All right. So we have here um, what starts out as, it sounds as a, a little bit of a glimmer of hope at the beginning of this chapter, um, but very quickly um, is negative because we, we read here about the capture of the northern kingdom. So we start with Hoshea's reign, verses 1 and 2. Um, now note there, it's during the time of Ahaz, king of Judah. And that's actually the focus of 16, which we didn't read. But basically, Ahaz in Judah is a very wicked king. One, one of the worst kings of Judah. Um, and it tells us about him, if you were to look at ver uh, chapter 16 quickly with me, 3 and 4, it says that this king Ahaz um, was especially wicked. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even made his son to pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. So sometimes you wonder, why, why would God remove the Canaanites? Well, this is one of the reasons. They were extremely wicked people they sacrificed their children in their false worship. But this king of Judah was doing the same thing. So he's a very wicked king. In verse 4, we also see that he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Um, I've made a point when we were reading through 2 Kings to repeatedly point out that part of the problem, or a big part of the problem, with the, the nation of Israel and the leadership of the kings was that they allowed this kind of worship to go on. But in this case, the language is very specific that the king participated in this kind of worship. Not just allowed it like many of the other kings or didn't remove it, he participated in it. A very wicked king in the south. But He's not actually the focus here, um, but it's a reference point for where these things are happening in the time frame of the Northern Kingdom. So Hoshea has uh, reigned. He actually took over by a conspiracy. Um, we did read in chapter 15 that this king took over by conspiracy, killing the previous king and then becoming king in his place. Now, notice what it says about him. It's kind of a little surprising for a king of the north, verse 2 of chapter 17. It says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Sorry, that part's not surprising, right? That's what we expect. However, this next phrase is unexpected. It says, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. So he was bad, but not quite as bad as, as the rest of them. 
So in a way, the little bit of negative spoken is very positive in light of some of the others. I, just looking at it, trying to be somewhat cynical here, but this king of the north isn't as bad as the rest, so does that mean there's hope for the north, that things are going to get better? No, it's too far gone at this point, and so God is going to bring the removal of the northern kingdom into Assyria, and that's what we read about in verses 5 and 6. So he had been paying tribute at 7, 3, and 4, but he stopped doing that. Uh, it's kind of like we talked about last time. You know, you, you give a bribe or you give in to a demand for money, then it just never stops. You can't ever get out of it. Well, and that was the case. He tried to get out of it. And so the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, went up to Samaria, verse 5, and besieged it three years. And it says, in the ninth year, he captured Samaria and carried Israel away. So they're taken away in exile. So we have Assyria taken over. Now, I think I mentioned this number um, last week, and Pastor, Pastor Lee is not allowed to answer this question, but I'm uh, wondering if you know what year this was that the northern kingdom is taken captivity into, into Assyria. Seven twenty-two. That's right. Seven twenty-two. All right. So uh, I should have said the whole Lee family can't answer, but uh, uh, <laughs> all right. Seven twenty-two is right. That is when the northern kingdom is taken captive by Assyria. All right, and brings um, the destruction. Now, since I'm, I'll put the ban on the Lees for this question. Now, um, how about the southern kingdom? Do you know when the southern kingdom is taken to Babylon? Arguably, there could be two answers because it happens multiple times, but anyone venture a guess? Remember the BC works backwards, right? So we're counting down instead of up. So 722 and we're getting less than that. Anyone? Okay, it's, it's actually much longer between them than that. It, it's actually... I think the first, and, and Dan can correct me, but uh, I, I think the first captivity was 605, but the typical date that they talk about where they're really carried away to Babylon is 586. Um, is that jive with your understanding there? Okay, all right. Um, so there is a significant gap between those two, 722 and 586. So God allows Judah to remain longer, the southern kingdom, and as we'll see, um, provided I don't keep getting on rabbit trails, um, we'll, we'll be able to see that the north wasn't superior as far as being perfectly righteous, and that's why they lasted longer. God had different purposes. God had a purpose for them lasting longer. They're ultimately the tribe of Judah, which is the one from whom the Messiah would eventually come. So he does allow the southern kingdom to last longer. Um, but the northern kingdom here is captured, 722. Now, let's, let's read about, uh, okay, I want to make one more number reference. So this is approximately, 722 is approximately 200 years after the split of the northern kingdom from the southern kingdom. 
So as we read about, and we're going to read more, the northern kingdom was perpetually evil. They committed the sins of Jeroboam from the beginning, never departed from that, did a whole bunch of other wicked things, and yet God endured them for 200 years. Amazing the patience of God. So we're going to look at this. It's harsh. It, it seems cruel. And yet, God was very long-suffering in a, in a real sense. So let's look at the causes, uh, 7 to 23. Now, just to give you a little bit of framework, um, I like to alliterate things. not always good at it, and sometimes it's forced. Um, hopefully this isn't the case, but my attempt to try and categorize the causes to help you have a framework to make reference to them is I've got four words that start with the letter F, all right? So, they forsook God and their covenant with him, number one. They forsook God and their covenant with him. Uh, number two, false worship. We've already talked about that a lot, but false worship is a big part of the problem, including human sacrifice and sorcery or communication with uh, evil spirits. Um, they followed man, or they, they followed the practices of other nations and their worship and their practices is another reason. And then lastly, and this is, this is a big one too, they failed to repent when repeatedly confronted about their sin. So, with those things in mind, let's start with 7 and 8. It says, now this came about because, here's our reasoning, the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up from the land of Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they f had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. All right, so I see 7 and 8 kind of as an introductory summary of the reasons, and then he's going to start detailing uh, more as we go on. So, we see very clearly they forsook God. They sinned against God. They abandoned Him. They committed false worship. This was commandment number one, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Um, they uh, also made idols. Commandment number two, right? Um, no, no, uh, no graven images. They... Uh, made false gods, they worshiped false gods, and they followed the practices of other nations like we talked about. Now, he's going to mention here in verses 9 to 12 some specific sins of false worship. So let's just read that quickly. It says, The sons of Israel did, secret, did, did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city, they set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burned incense in all the high places as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Alright, so again, we see the repeat there. Uh, false worship. They're serving, worshiping idols. Um, they set up ashram or uh, poles to uh, worship, dance around, and uh, do those kinds of things. Um, they rejected uh, 
the worship in the, the one location that God had designated to focus on worshiping him, but they set up all these other false worship locations. And let's look at 13 and 14. I think this is uh, really instructive because we understand that human beings are sinners. We're sinners. We know we've done wrong, right? But a huge problem is when you will not repent of the wrong you've done. You will not recognize it. And this was true of Israel. Look at 13 and 14. It says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I command your fathers, which I have sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen but stiffened their neck like the fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. So, in spite of these things, God repeatedly gave them warnings to repent of this. He was calling them to renew their covenant commitment, to forsake those false gods. Can you name some of the prophets that God sent? There are many. Can you think of some of the prominent names of prophets that God sent during these times? You said Jeremiah? I believe Jeremiah's in the Babylonian captivity time frame, actually. And I think Jeremiah might be the guy who wrote First and Second Kings, actually. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if his ministry was before the southern kingdom was captive or only after, but... Okay, so Jeremiah, who, who else we got? Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah, I think Isaiah. Remember Isaiah talks about Uzziah? Uh, after the death of Uzziah, he was around that time frame. Elisha. Elisha. That's one of the big ones I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah, the, the two E prophets, right? Let's start with the letter E. Elisha was one of them. Elijah, the other one, right? Those men had huge ministries, big impact. They were a big part. And, and they had dramatic confrontations with the, the leadership of Israel, right? Um, significant roles. Yeah, so we could go on and on. Um, Hosea, Amos, um, Ahijah, uh, during the days of Jeroboam, actually. Um, Micaiah, Jonah, even. You don't necessarily think of Jonah, uh, the prophet, but he, he was there. Micah, uh, maybe Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, not exactly sure on some of those, but a lot of them. And we know there are numerous others that God didn't give us the names. Um, so they refused to listen, though, and that was a huge part of the problem. They didn't repent. And the emphasis is made repeatedly, again in verse 15, that they followed the nations. But I want to read 16 and 17 <coughs> before going on to the next uh, section to again emphasize this false worship that they were committing. In 16 it says, They forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images to even two gold or two calves and made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So we see that the nation of Israel was extremely wicked extremely wicked. Not only did they forsake God, they worshipped idols, they worshipped all these false gods. We have 
We have with Jeroboam him setting up the two calves, instituting at the national level false worship, and then who is that wicked king that set up Baal worship at the national level? Who is that guy and his wonderful wife? Ahab, right? Ahab and Jezebel. They, they got Baal worship going in full force in the nation, national level. Very wicked. Um, and they may also have had a hand in the Asherah worship as well. Um, but they worshiped these false gods. But not only that, they consulted with evil spirits, these enchantments, divination. And they, made, they did human sacrifice on their children abominable practices. And so these are the reasons God destroyed the Canaanites. So if Israel is engaged in the same practices, they're bringing themselves under the need for that same judgment. And so that's what God does. These are the reasons. But let's also uh, let's also um, move on. I want to uh, Read about um, okay. Let me before I move on to the conclusion here, it, which is starting with verse 24. Let's look at some more and and talk about Judah because Judah continues to exist for a while, and as we mentioned, it's about 140 more years that they still remain after this um, before the Babylonian captivity. Um, but notice what he says. Let's let's read 18, 19, and 20 here. Uh, it says, So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Alright, so... Judah is not innocent either. Judah is also guilty of many of these same sins. It does seem that Israel is sort of on the fast track, and Judah sort of lags behind somewhat at times, and then at other times they're pretty wicked too. But God allows Judah to exist longer, but it's not because they are perfectly following the covenant and they're faithful to their God holy, as we talked about in chapter 16. There was a very wicked king, um, King Ahaz, there in the south. But God has a purpose for delaying their captivity, which will come uh, about 140 years later. So, let's, let's move on then and see now how things conclude with the northern kingdom in this chapter and what happens here. Um, this is helpful to know, and this is helpful background to understand actually why there is tension in the New Testament between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. Okay, Samaria was Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. But what happens is Assyria takes Israel away into Assyria and plants new people there. So what you end up with in Assyria is either half-breeds, like a combination of Jews and Gentiles, or in some cases, just Gentiles. But this is the tension in the New Testament because 
um, they're living in the area, and in some cases they may be half-breed Jews, but because they're half-breeds, the, the pure uh, tribes, uh, or the pure uh, uh, Jews that weren't half-breeds resent them and don't want anything to do with them. And that's the background of the tension there that you see in the New Testament with the Samaritans. But let's look at what happens with this combining of new people and their religious practices and how this works out. There's a lot to read, and, I, and I'll just kind of skip around where it makes sense. But let's start with the end of um, 23, where it says that Israel was carried away into exile from their own land into Assyria until this day. All right, so the vast majority of Israel is carried away into Assyria. They're taken captive and they're made to live there. But this is then what the king of Assyria does. It says in verse 24, the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Cutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharvaim and settled them in cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. So we have this influx of all new people from various places. So we have a mixed culture of people, which then is going to result in a confusion of religious practices. So let, let's see what happens in 25. It says, at the beginning of their living there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have carried away into exile in the cities of Samaria do not know the custom of the God of the land. So he has sent lions among them, and behold, they kill them because they do not know the custom of the God of the land. Fascinating. So God brings natural judgment on some using lions to attack them and it's kind of fascinating to me that they they recognize um, that there's something wrong and they need to address this so it it sounds kind of good right so what do they do look what the king of Assyria does in 27 28 the king of Assyria commanded saying take there one of the priests whom you carry away into exile let him go and live there and let him teach them the custom of the God of the land so one of the priests whom they had carried away into exile in Samaria came and lived at Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. It sounds great, right? They, they're setting up this guy to teach them the right way to live, and uh, sounds good. It sounds good. Well, it, it doesn't quite work so well. Verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they believed. So, instead of recognizing the Lord is God, and He needs to be followed and obeyed, they simply add some of these practices, or the recognition of the God of Israel, into their collection of worship that they do. So, you know what this practice is called? Syncretism, I think, is the right term. You're basically incorporating multiple gods in your worship. They are integrated, they're integrating the worship of the Lord or whatever practices they learned about Him. Um, they are integrating that into what they already do. 
Does God ever speak to that issue? <laughs> What's commandment number one, right? No other gods, right? The worship of the Lord God of Israel is exclusive. He alone is to be worshipped because he is the only true God. But they're just adding their recognition of him to their other commitments. So it's this mingling, this mixing of religious practices, and it's a mess. And this continues to go on. So let's uh, read 34 to 40 to see kind of how these things play out. Now, I, I want to mention, I've, I think I've said this before, but before I read this, because he's going to make reference to this, my understanding is that this book, partly because of what's all covered and how it ends, it ends actually with the southern kingdom going into captivity. Um, my understanding is this book was written maybe by Jeremiah, though I, I, it doesn't name him, um, maybe by Jeremiah or another prophet like him that was there in Babylon and this book is actually addressing why did all of this happen to the nation of Israel. And so this is a huge part of what's happening to the northern kingdom, right? And, and we know the southern kingdom's guilty of the same things. Um, and there's more to come in this book. But multiple times the author makes reference to, to this day. And what I'm telling you is to this day includes Babylonian captivity, 586 and, and beyond, all right? So when he says this, his point is this stuff started in the 720 BC time frame, but it's continued on for at least 140, 150 years. So verse 34, it says, to this day, they do according to the earlier customs. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandments which the Lord commanded the sons of Jacob, whom he named Israel with whom the Lord made a covenant and commanded them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, and to him you shall bow yourselves down, and to him you shall sacrifice. The statutes and the ordinances and the law and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall observe to do forever, and you shall not fear other gods. The covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not listen. But they did according to their earlier custom. So I, I think this is a statement both of Israel, who was given the covenant and his promises and his commands, in a sense, he's speaking of their failure to repent and to listen to change, but it also reflects now this new mixed culture in the northern kingdom, in Samaria, that has been populated mostly by the king of Assyria with all these different people groups, it's this combined mixture of 
religious practices which ultimately does not satisfy God, does not meet his demands for exclusive worship and that he be obeyed and his word be followed, they are not doing that. And, and the point that the author here is making is that this went on from the beginning of the Northern Kingdom it continued to go on. It's why they were removed and sent to Assyria and this replanting, even though there was teaching about the God of Israel and how to obey him, ultimately they did not listen. They did not listen. And we see ultimately this corruption goes on for future generations. Look at verse 41. It said, so while these nations fear the Lord, they also serve their idols. Their children likewise and their grandchildren, as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So I guess now that I read that more carefully, he's, he's kind of grouping the things in two categories, speaking of Israel and all of their failures and the refusal to obey God and, and being committed to false worship to, to the day of the writing, but also these planted groups, even though they were taught about the Lord and had some acknowledgement of the Lord, ultimately remained committed to their other idols and they just recognized God in a sense, um, along with all their other gods. So ultimately, it is a religious mess in the Northern Kingdom. It is a mess. And this is actually background for what we see in the New Testament with tensions with the Samaritans. You can, at one level, you can somewhat understand some of that is justifiable concern about the Samaritans because of the worship. And we even see this come out with Jesus talking to the woman at the well. He makes it clear that the Jews know whom they're worshiping. They worship the Lord, and salvation is coming through the Jews, specifically the tribe of Judah. So Jesus emphasizes that. Um, but ultimately, Jesus helps all of us to understand eventually that the gospel is going to go to the whole world. It wasn't only for the Jews. It wasn't only for the pure tribes of Israel. It was for all people. Um, so, in reflecting on this, I think we should take instruction that God's word is very important and must be obeyed. They did not obey God's word. That is a root problem here. They did not obey what God had said. They didn't obey how God said to worship. They didn't worship him alone. They weren't faithful to him and his word. And in spite of repeated confrontation over this, they didn't repent. They rejected these prophets. In some cases, they harmed them or killed them or imprisoned them. And I think it's instructive to think about some of this horrific worship of human sacrifice. Human cruelty such as that is a direct result of forsaking God. 
God is a God of love and peace, and yes, there is time that God would have people to fight and to stand, and I think also as a nation, God gives nations the ability and responsibility to sometimes fight and stand, but these acts of human cruelty are ultimately the, the reflection of the human nature forsaking God, creating their own false means of worship. But yet, when we look at all this, we say, well, we're, we're meant to conclude after reading all of this, yes, God was just in punishing them because they were very wicked. We're absolutely meant to come to that conclusion, and we do, and we should, but we also are meant to come to a conclusion after reading this not, instead of looking at it a different way, not just, yep, he was just in doing that. One of the questions that might arise in our mind is, why did it take 200 years to get to this? God's patient. God is forbearing. God is merciful. God longs for people to repent, right? He, he wants people to repent, and he gives time and opportunity. And he did that. Multiple opportunities. We talked about the prophets. The ones we know of are a dozen. There probably were a lot more. Our God is a merciful God. So we should absolutely be committed to living for him, being faithful to him and his word, but we should also be quick to repent, and we should be thankful that our God is merciful, that he does forbear, and he does give opportunity to repent. And if we need to, we should take advantage of that opportunity to confess and forsake our sin, to more faithfully and accurately worship him and obey him as we ought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, it is amazing when we look at how you've worked and your patience, your, your, your long-suffering. A couple hundred years you allowed these things. And yet, you are just. You deal with people. You deal with these things. And, and we saw throughout the book, multiple times, you removed wicked kings. You judged wicked kings for their great wickedness. And, uh, and yet, uh, you waited for a long time to remove the nation. And yet, you are, you are merciful, you are gracious, and, and you are to be feared. Father, help us to have the right kind of reverence and respect for you, to be faithful, to worship you as we ought. But help us also to remember that you are merciful and forgiving and are eager for us to repent. Help us to be quick to do that when that's necessary. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.